Would you join with me and pray one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, as we come to your word, it is with this hope, this confident hope, you will meet with us and by your word speak to us. For where your word goes out, it always bears the fruit you intend. It is not dead but alive. And so we pray, open our eyes, unstop our ears, make our hearts malleable to receive the word of the one true living God. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We had said last week, uh, sort of in as an introduction to the law, that, um, that when we come to the law in Christ, we don't come to it as a series of you must do this to live. But as we heard in the intro to the law in verse 1 and 2, that while uh, this is the law, it is given in the context of God redeeming a people. He's brought them out of slavery to Mount Sinai, whereas his new freed people, he would instruct them on how to live a free life. James calls the law the law of liberty, calls it perfect, or maybe translated this way, the law of perfect freedom. And that has to be our basic approach to the commands of God, that this is Not only God commanding, but what God commands is good and necessary for our flourishing. That the obedience to the law is the pathway to real freedom. For the love of God is this, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. The love of God, this is it. That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Love, obedience, go hand in hand. They naturally go together. And this is true, even if you're not a Christian, this is just generally true in our lives. We always obey our greatest loves. Look at how you lose, use limited resources, right? They reveal your greatest love. For instance, when you have an opportunity for career advancement that's in conflict with an important event of your child's life, you have limited resources, you have to make a decision, and your decision will reveal your greatest love. Or when you sit down to pay your bills and you decide where your money will go, it will go to whatever you love the most, to cars or vacation or maybe building up your savings so you can feel secure, love, and obedience always go together. We always obey our greatest loves. And so as we approach the first commandment, God is calling us to examine our loves so that we can walk in perfect freedom. In fact, the Ten Commandments themselves are bracketed with dealing with our loves. The first commandment really begs the question, who do you love or obey? Or what do you love and obey? And and the last commandment deals with uh, satisfaction in love, with coveting. Be satisfied, don't covet. And so the commandments themselves bracket our lives with dealing with the most basic issue that drives all of us. The search for satisfaction and the object of our affection. You and I are made to be satisfied. We're made to be satisfied by the love of something much greater than anything that we can produce or build. 
right? Because if we can produce it, or if we can earn it, or we can gain it, it will never satisfy the desire that gave birth to it, right? If it's born out of our desire, the desire is greater than the created thing. And so the first commandment really drills down to the want-tos of our heart, goes under our dues to our desires. So this is really the underlying premise of the first commandment. God has made your soul to run on love for him that is born out of his love for you. Augustine said it this way. That fourth century great leader, North Africa, made this his prayer. Oh God, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so here's where we have to start. It's an important commandment, right? Why start here? Why does this, the first commandment, you are what you worship. This is a theme that runs throughout the the whole of the scriptures. It's a, a thread that connects the book of Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. You are what you worship. Or to say it another way, worship recreates who you are. And, and not just this, this context of us gathering for worship. We've said this a number of times through the book of Exodus. This actually, this act of corporate worship actually does recreate us. It, it, it forms our affections, our desires. But just in general, in a more basic level, as, as made in the image of God, we're all worshipers. And the object of your worship recreates who you are. Right? So it's not enough just to simply say, I believe in God. The Bible really presses two questions to that confession. If you say, I believe in God, the Bible asks, which God? And then how do you handle him? Those are the first two commandments. Which God are you worshiping? What is the object of your desires, your affection? And how do you handle him? That's the second commandment. So the commandments really start here because this, to quote J.I. Packer here, This is the fundamental commandment. This is the most basic of the commandments. It's first in importance, he says, as well as order. It's basic to every other. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the commandment. True religion, he goes on, starts with accepting this as the one rule of life. Your God, our God, my God, your God is what you love, seek, Worship, serve, and allow to control you. Not just what, who or what you might confess with your lips, but more basically, who do you love? Who do you seek? Who do you worship? Who do you serve? Who controls you? Now, the first commandment starts here, right? But you might, you might be thinking to yourself, right? I'm not sure that God even exists. I, I'm, I'm agnostic towards the possibility. I'm, I'm indifferent. Well, the Bible really kind of presses us and says, it says this, something is your ultimate, right? Something in your life is controlling how you view yourself, how you view the world, what gets your ultimate allegiances. We all have these gods with a little g that function as our gods. So for instance, if you've seen 
the uh, latest uh, Facebook series on Tom Brady, Time versus Tom. He's 40 years old. He's the run-up to, the, to, to today's Super Bowl. The most successful quarterback in the history of football. He's got one Super Bowl ring for every finger on his right hand. And this is what Brady says about, super, uh, about football in, um, in Time versus Tom. Quote, he asks this question. What are you willing to do and what are you willing to give up? You only have so much energy. The clock's ticking on all of us. When you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. I've given my body, my everything, my energy to football. So if you're willing to win against me, you better be willing to give up your life because I've given up mine. That's the first commandment. First commandment, simply put, what are you willing to give up your life in pursuit of? We all have something. I mean, he's, he's speaking here in the language of love and seek and refuge and obedience. My life is governed by this thing, and we all have them. Them, in the plural. Not just one or two. There are things that drive our lives. You are changed. We are changed into what we worship. Or as, as one New Testament scholar puts it this way in his great book on, on following this theme throughout the scriptures, really puts it this way. You become what you worship either for ruin or restoration. It sets a trajectory. The object of your worship sets a trajectory. And so the first commandment, the call to have no other gods before me is really a call to satisfaction. It's a God commanding, be satisfied. Nothing else is worthy of your time and attention and energy and the controlling of your life. You have been made, we have been made to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what Jesus is calling into question with the rich young ruler when he says, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus lays out for him the last few commandments. And he says, I've kept all of those. And Jesus says to him, what do you love and what is controlling your life? Give it up, walk away. And the man leaves sad, burdened, downtrodden. We have these functional worship in our lives. If you're not a Christian, something ultimate other than other than the one true God, something ultimate is controlling our lives. And again, there usually for most of us, there are many of them. Calvin called the heart an idol-making factory. He's constantly churning them out. I received an email from a, a friend one time who was complaining about his neighbor's animals. They're wandering all around his yards. He's like, there are goats and sheep and horses. And so he, he begins looking into why all these animals are wandering around his yard, and he lives in the suburbs. And so he replies back to me, as I write this, I found out why we had so many animals. There are sacrifices, animal sacrifices occurring right outside my door right now. And we bristle at that. We're, we're more sophisticated and, and modern. We get a little unsettled that these helpless animals are being slaughtered for the sake of worship. But here's what I thought. As I read that, there are sacrifices happening right under my nose right now. I'm willing to inflict emotional harm on my children just to 
get my life ordered the way I want, or I'm willing to neglect my flock just so I can be more comfortable and not press into hard situations or have difficult conversations. I am willing to give up my generosity towards others so that I can have the next thing on my list. I am too sacrificing to my gods because we are people who are in search, a desperate search for satisfaction. And we understand intuitively that worship is the way to get there. Blaise Pascal put it this way. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Right? That's the driving force, he's saying. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend towards this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man even those who hang themselves. The famous comedian Chris Farley died from alcohol and drug overdose at the high point of his career, right? He was at the pinnacle of his career. And this is what he said, right? People were comparing him to the most brilliant comedians. And this is what he said just a few days before his death. I really thought that once I made it to this point in my life, I would be happy. I've arrived. I have it all. Money, fame, popularity, and yet I'm still searching for contentment in life and the saddest line of it all, and I have no place else to go. What we're talking about here, the problem of idolatry, it's the core problem of of all of our drives and all of our lives. Trace any dysfunctional behavior in your life and you will trace it down to an object of worship. And idolatry is worship exchange. It's an instead of problem. That's why the commandment stated this way. You shall have no other gods before me. Literally, the image in the Hebrew is before my face. Some might translate it besides me. I'm the only one commanding that we get rid of these other things. And so in Jeremiah, he accuses his people who have been worshiping other gods with a little g. He says, look, you've got a twofold problem. My people have committed two evils. Jeremiah 2.13, they have forsaken me. That's evil one. The fountain of living waters. And have hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Circling back around to Tom Brady. He's famous for saying, look, um, this is an interview on 60 Minutes. Why do I have two, three, sorry, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something out there greater for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is it. You've reached your goal, your dream. My life, me, I think, man, there's got to be something more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I mean, look, I've done it. He was 27 when he said that. 
He's now 40 and still giving life the endless search for satisfaction from football. But don't point your fingers. We all do it. And this is what happens. We get in this endless cycle of promise and disappointment on the treadmill of searching for satisfaction outside of the one true God and his love for us. We get on this treadmill and it exhausts us. So the question is, how do we get off the idolatrous treadmill? How do we get off the sinful first commandment breaking search for satisfaction that would lead to obedience from other things? So I want to give us five things that we can do. If you're taking notes, five things that we can do to get off of the cycle of promise and disappointment that our idols get us stuck in, right? So here's the pattern. The idol promises life. We go looking for it. It only dissatisfies us and then drives us into the ground. We become what we worship either for ruin or restoration. So first thing, you have to break the cycle of promise and dissatisfaction through repentance. Your heart doesn't have room to worship your Savior and the created thing. This is the point Jesus, again, is making to the rich young ruler. You've got to have to turn your back on it. You've got to have to put it down and walk away. You shall have no other gods before me is the commandment to put all of those little gods, all of the idols, down. Walk away. God is a jealous God. He'll give his glory to no created thing. He will not share that space in your heart with any other. He is committed to driving it out of your life and driving them out of the world. Put it down. Walk away. Look at it and say, that's ugly. I don't want it anymore. You can't have both just going to stay on the cycle. You can't serve God in money. Jesus says you're going to love one and hate the other. Hate the idol. Leads to ruin. Secondly, this is important, so I'm going to belabor this point a second. You can't just put your idol down. You have to replace it. You can't just turn your back on it. The heart has to be full And if it's not full, it will go looking for life someplace else. And so many of you have been stuck in the pattern of the Christian life, just stalling out because you've just tried to turn your back on sin and not replace it with a heart full of the love of God for you. Our hearts always tend towards satisfaction. And so distinctly learned this lesson when we lived in Florida. At a small yard in the suburbs, I was that guy who always had a nice yard. And I learned a lesson in trying to keep a nice yard. There was a constant fight against weeds. And, and I started out just by trying to spray the weeds. But you know what happens when you kill weeds? You know what grows back in their place? Weeds. The only way to drive weeds out of your, your yard is to make the grass so lush and full that there's no room for the, the weeds even to take root. Life drives out weeds. 
The grass will push them back as they flourish and suffocate them so they can't grow anymore. The heart will never be full until Jesus becomes your only satisfaction. You have to turn your back on your idols because Jesus is the only one big enough to fill the void of your longings. He is the only one strong enough to bear the eternal weight of your lives. The only one faithful enough to never let us down. The only one who will love us at our worst. The only one who can make us different because he has eternal life. We can do this all day long. He is the only one that can bear the weight of your hopes and your dreams and your desires. You become what you worship either for ruin or restoration. And what you are worshiping now, trust, love, and obedience, is setting a trajectory for your future. It might just be a subtle shift that's made now, but as you put it down, pick up Jesus, let let your heart fill you. That sets you on one trajectory. Paul says it this way, as we behold the face of Jesus, we're being changed from one degree of glory to another. The psalmist says it about the other trajectory this way. So Psalm 115 is picked up in Isaiah chapter 44 as well. Your idols are deaf, dumb, mute, and blind. There's no life in them. So those who make them become like them, and so do those who trust in them. Two trajectories. Take up your idol, deaf, dumb, and blind, going to drive you into the ground. You'll wither and die and always be dissatisfied as you give your life out for them. Or come to me and drink. You'll never be thirsty again. Come and eat my table. You'll never be hungry again. Come and let my glory fill your hearts. You'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's the second. Third, now these last few are much shorter. Third, we've already hit on this, but I gotta say it. Dwell in the love of God for you in Christ. And the reason we have to pull this out and make another point of it is this. Our idols always promise that they will love us back. They have no life in themselves. Your career can't love you back. Your your Seeking after pleasure can't love you back. Always demands more. They're they're slave masters who are never satisfied and only want your obedience and never return love. They always overpromise, underdeliver, always demanding more by just holding the carrot of their love out in front of you like a horse chasing it. You'll never get there. But our idols say this. They say, obey, and I'll give you my love. And the gospel turns that on its head, and the Father says, I've given you all of my love. All the love that I have for my son, if you're in him, I now have for you. I've so loved you, I've given you my spirit, and that's my love shed abroad in your heart so that you might know the height, the width, the depth, the surpassing love of God for you in Christ. And now he says, where idols say, obey and I'll love you, the Father says, I love you. You can't lose that. 
Now go, baby. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not a carrot that he holds out in front. Satisfaction drives us. Fourthly, again, this is important to pull out. You have to break the shame cycle by casting your shame onto Christ. Because not only do our idols, the little gods, promise satisfaction, never deliver, promise love, and never love us back, but they, they churn in our hearts the cycle of shame. They're shame-producing factories. That's the only thing that they produce in our lives. They're always dissatisfied. They're always crying out, give me more. You've not done enough. They demand that you give more and more and more. And when they, you don't, they heap shame on your soul. This is, by the way, this is the pattern that addicts get stuck in. It has to be broken or they'll never be free. I get high to deal with my shame. And then I feel shame for getting high. So I get high again. And we're all addicts stuck in this cycle. I'm going to pursue my career. You can always get higher and better. There's always somebody higher and better than you. And it drives us. I feel ashamed for that. I'm not as good as I should be. I'm not as good as a mom as I should be. I'm not as good as a dad as I should be. I'm not as good as a Christian as I should be. Cycle. Shame. Heaping on your head. And it spirals into despair. But this is where Jesus so radically says... Look, I'm the living God, and I've died to take your shame onto me. What's, you know, naked and ashamed, he hung on the cross. Why? To give those who trust in him all of his glory. You'll sit, if you trust in Christ, you'll sit on thrones and judge nations. Great glory and honor. You'll reign with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Great glory and and honor. Why? Because he died a shameful death so that you could be elevated as sons of God and have brought into the Father's delight. Fifth, lastly, or sorry, move, yeah, fifth, lastly, move towards God in your suffering so that you might gain its treasures. Job afflicted, before afflicted, or after his first affliction, confesses this. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How does he get there? How do we get there, right? How do we, how do we get to the place where we're willing to say, God, give, take away, doesn't matter. I've learned the secret of being content in all situations by seeing this. Suffering is only God cutting the heads off your idols. Suffering is the place where our our false gods come to die. And the things that you thought would come through for you when you're suffering, you realize they don't. And when God looks at you in the midst of the suffering, he's saying to you, look, I love you enough. You don't understand the thing that you're doing to your own heart. Trying to get life from it, but it's killing you. You don't even see it. 
I'm going to afflict you to cut its head off so that we can say with the psalmist this. This is Psalm 73. My flesh, my heart, my fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, it's good to be near to God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all of your works. Look, Asaph, Psalm 73, he doesn't get there until he experiences suffering. If you want your heart to leap for joy, you've got to let God afflict you to cut the heads off your idols so that you could say it's good for me to be near to God. Let me pray. Father, as we, um, as we have come to your word, certainly you have convicted us, and that is a good thing. And I boldly pray that you would convict us so deeply of our breaking of your command that we would have no place else to turn for refuge but you alone. For you're the God who has been offended by our sin and the God who has covered the offense by your son. And so we stand in him. He is our only hope. He is our life. He is our future. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.